I think Mark should preach more. What about you? All right, every other Sunday here, baby, let's do it. Have you ever felt like God has, has mercifully spared you from sure and certain frustration in your life? Um, so I, I've been fighting anthrax for like the past four weeks. And do you have these moments where, where for, for reasons undefined, you just feel good for like a day? And, and you get excited, you take advantage of it. So this was yesterday for me. And uh, when you wake up in the morning, it's like, I actually want to get out of bed. I actually want to take a shower. And it's like, you know what? It's Saturday. Hey, guys, get in the car. Let's go up to Lake Geneva, grab something to eat. Now... All right, some of you know. I forgot that it was Winterfest in Lake Geneva. Are you familiar with this, Winterfest? Basically what it is is it's a way to get people to shop at a lakefront town when no one wants to be at a lakefront town. And what they do is they have this international um, snow sculpting competition, or at least national. And there's these huge, elaborate, like 10-foot snow sculptures that like really you did that out of... Snow, and, and there, there's street vendors and musicians and helicopter rides, and, and the town is packed. You pull up, and you can't find parking anywhere. So what do you do when you're in Lake Geneva, and it's February, and you can't find street parking anywhere? You do what any normal person would do. You park on the lake. It's free, it's easy, it's convenient, and you're right there. Now, for me, I've lived up in that neck of the woods for about 13 years now. And my kind of rule of thumb with parking on the lake is this. If someone else is doing it, it's okay to do. <laughs> right? We drive up there, and there has to be 30, 40 cars, I would say, right at the boat launch, right at the mouth, out into the lake about maybe maybe 50 feet or something like that. But you're looking out, the ice fishermen are out, the snowmobilers are out. So you, you see some cars even parked way out there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, guys, let's, let's park on the Red Lake. Now, have you ever said to your family, let's park on the lake? Okay? If not, try it, see how they respond. Especially if you have younger kids in the car. The nervousness, you, know, it, it, you could see it, no, we can't go in the lake. And so what does that make you want to do all the more as a dad? Go on the lake. So what do we do? We're pulling up to Lake Geneva, there's a traffic jam going right, left turn right onto the lake. We go out, we start spinning around, and it's too far to walk. It's, they talk me out of parking on the lake. <laughs> Did you watch the news last night? You have the picture here? G give us the picture here of the parking lot on the lake. <laughs> now here's my question. You see that SUV way out in the distance that's actually on the ice? It looks like he's okay, doesn't it? How is he gonna get off the lake? Sometimes God spares you from sure and certain frustration, right? Sometimes God intervenes and you can do nothing but look at a photo like this and go, thank you, Lord, for a wise family and <laughs> intervention. 
and sparing a fool like me. Isn't that nuts? You, you know, God is, is absolutely faithful. There's all kinds of things that we can say about God. Somehow at the core of the nature of who this guy is, is an idea of faithfulness. That when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And he's trustworthy because of that. I don't know. I, I make promises all the time. How about you? Maybe I don't use the word I promise. But I tell people I'm going to do things all the time. I tell myself I'm going to live in a certain way or do things all the time. And, you know, we, we know how this goes. We're well-intentioned. But life happens. Life happens and we forget. Or we, we plan poorly. Or life interjects itself. Or sometimes, let's just be straight up, we lose motivation. We're not in the mood. What was exciting to us, and so just in the moment at one point, doesn't really hold. And, and I think we have this tendency as people, don't we, if we're straight up, that our word often doesn't really mean as much as we say it will. I mean, you can push this to, to minute degrees, but it all counts. You ever tell someone you're going to be somewhere at a certain time, and then you just not? Or you change the plan last minute, but it's okay because you texted right? I think we project the same kind of attitude on God. I think we think of God in the same way that, that we think of ourselves, where, yeah, God gives promises, God tells us stuff, God, God, God is well-intentioned. But, you know, life happens, stuff comes up, or, or situations change, and we know that when situations change, we got to kind of change with it. So, so our word is only as strong as the moment, so we kind of expect God's word to be the same way. And I think it does something. I think it creates an, an attitude that at some level, we're just a little bit afraid of planting our feet a little too firmly on the promises that he makes. But what you see over and over again through the Bible is this idea, God is faithful and we can trust him. And the constant invitation, trust me, God says. Everyone else may vacillate. I am faithful. And I don't break my word. Now here, it sounds, that sounds great, doesn't it? Here's the issue. Sometimes you go to the Bible where you see these promises God has made and it just doesn't seem like he is true to his word. I'm going to give you an example here. Just read this. It's a promise God makes to a guy a long time ago named Abraham. At first, it revolves around this odd idea of commanding them to be circumcised, which seems so out of sorts for us today. What's the big deal? But look at that last line. After choosing this guy named Abraham and one of his descendants and promising all these things, he says to him, my covenant in your flesh, the circumcision thing, the sign of circumcision is going to be a sign that this promise that I've made to you is, is how long? Everlasting. So if God says a promise is everlasting, how long should we expect that promise to hold? Forever, right? 
And then you come to Jesus, or you come to a guy like Paul, and he turns around and he says something like this. Can you see the issue here? God said it's forever. And you seem to have no problem dismissing it, rejecting it, turning another way, or, or, or somehow reading words to mean something that apparently means something that I don't think that they mean. And what it does is it kind of creates an uncertainty, doesn't it? What, what, what has God actually promised? Can I actually understand his promises? Uh, how do I know that his promise isn't going to change? And, and I think it creates this, this whole kind of sense for, for especially believers of going I don't know how to trust him. Because if God is faithful and says he's going to do what he said he's going to do, and I think I know how to read, how can he then later on flip it on its head in the strangest, most undermining of ways? Are you with me on this? And I think we've all kind of found like survival instinct kind of ways of dealing with this kind of issue. I mean, some of us just kind of chalk it up to our own idiocy. Well, I guess I just, I guess I just don't know what it means. You know, I can read everything else and know what it means, but maybe the Bible's a mystical book and I don't know how those... And it just feels weird, doesn't it? Or some of us start kind of coming up with like elaborate plans. Uh, well, maybe God has two plans or three plans or four plans, but none of it feels to sit just right. It feels kind of cop-out-ish, or maybe you just do what, what most people do. You stick your head in the sand and ignore it and hope it goes away, right? Just don't talk about those kinds of things, and let's just talk about Jesus and, like, being a good person or something, right? But none of it satisfies. And, and if God is faithful, it means he's got to be true to his word. It means when he says something, <laughs> pony up, God, Right? If you're inviting me to trust you, then show me that you're faithful to what you actually have to say. Now, I think it's important to kind of point something out. Paul knows this. Jesus does the same thing. Jesus knows this. If anyone understands the promises of God and the faithfulness of God, it's Jesus. Would you, would you agree? And if anyone is going to be faithful to the promises of God, it's going to be Jesus. So it should give us an indication of something going on when Jesus can take things, and Paul, who arguably knows Jesus better than just about anyone, can take these promises of the Old Testament and seem to twist them or do things in radically different ways. Ways. And what we're going to be doing these next several weeks is, is something called rethink. How Paul rethought the faithfulness and promises of God in light of meeting Jesus. Because when you come face to face with Jesus, nothing's ever the same. I don't mean when you come across his name or you hear about him. I mean, when you personally come face to face with Jesus, nothing is ever the same. It not only messes you up in here, it also kind of starts redefining everything in here. And what we're going to be looking at is how God is faithful, but often faithful in surprising ways.
And the one that we're going to look at today is the idea that stands behind all the circumcision stuff, what it means to be God's chosen people, or what's commonly called Israel. All right? Let me show you something. Here is a um, kind of the, the ground zero of Israel, you know, where it all began, if, if you can put it that way. There's this guy named Abram. No one really knows him. He, he isn't on the biblical map yet. And it's like seemingly out of the blue early on in, in, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God comes to Abram and he says this, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I'll show you. And then God just starts getting kind of outlandish here. He just starts like dropping promise bombs, you know, without regard for sanity. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. This is a nobody. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, I know we're looking at a snippet, and it's always dangerous to, to look at a snippet out of context, but I'm asking you to trust me on this as we look at the snippet. Do you notice there's like no qualification to the promise, right? There's no kind of like if then going on, like if you do this, then I will bless you. There's no condition to it right? Here, go to, your, go to the land I'm going to show you, but just boom, here it is. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to watch your back. And I'm going to try to bless, no, I'm not going to try, I'm going to bless all peoples on earth through you. Now the whole idea here of God just Picking someone and dumping blessing on them or choosing them for some specific purpose, it's something that is called election, an apropos word here in 2016. But election doesn't mean what we think it means where, where God kind of tallies it up and like, what do you want to vote for and that's what I'll do. It's, it's the idea of God simply choosing because that's all an election is, isn't it? At some base level, choosing. Why? Why do you choose in 2016 who you're going to vote for? I don't know. I don't really care either. The fact is you can choose who you want, right? If you can choose who you want, how much more can God and there's this idea in the Bible that God, for whatever reason, will simply choose. Choose someone or someones to do his work and give his blessing for no other reason maybe than he simply wants to. And what you see rooted in the early story of the Bible, and it's a story that shadows into all the other stories, is that God chooses this guy named Abram. And he makes these promises to him that are outlandish and great, that somehow you are special to me. You are set apart for me. You are a chosen one 
for me, and I'm going to do this for you, and I'm faithful because I am God, and you can trust me. Now, it's fascinating that this promise, that kind of central to it, is, is the idea of offspring. It never actually uses the word, but it, it, it's, it's kind of like hard to be a great nation of one. Would you agree? I mean, doesn't great nation kind of presuppose in some sort of way that there's going to be others with you who are kind of reaping the benefit of the promise? And the descendants of Abraham always thought about themselves that way. The descendants of Abraham, they always thought about themselves this way as being an extension of this promise that God gave to this guy named Abe simply because he wanted to, viewing themselves as set apart, something special chosen by him. And what you see is that Abraham, he, he then has two sons, one named Ishmael and another named Isaac. And God chooses the son named Isaac to give his promise to. And then Isaac has twins, Esau and Jacob. And of these two twins, God chooses this, this, this kid named Jacob through whom to, expend, to extend this, this great nation promise. And then what you see is this guy named Jacob gets into a fight with God, because really, why not, if you can? And God does something weird. Well, first he fights dirty, and then he changes his name to Israel. And then Israel, who's Jacob, right, has 12 sons. And have you ever heard of the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, it's a tribe. It's a family tree, right? And so what we see is that there is this, 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 this extended family that goes by the name of great-great-great-grandpa Israel who view themselves as chosen, set apart, and belonging to him, all rooted out of this promise given to Abraham. Now, here's the fly in the ointment. If I was to say that, that, that God's chosen people are Israel, you'd go, uh-huh, right? Or if I was to try to use a synonym and say that God's chosen people are the Jews, you would probably go, uh-huh, right? But have you ever actually tried to define in today's terms who Israel is? Now, my bet is, if I was to ask you, who is Israel? Who is Israel, because it seems tied in, you kind of have an immediate knee-jerk reaction. My bet is some of you, when I say Israel, you go, well, Israel's a country. All right, think about it. So does that mean the promise of God did not exist before 1948? Or if Israel's a country, which borders? Right? West Bank? Golan Heights, Old Davidic Kingdom all the way up to Damascus, which is Syria? Who's actually included? And if it is a country, like, like, like how does it actually affect the people? Is it like who's ever like living there at the time, regardless of nationality? Is it whoever got a, a Israeli passport? Do you see how it doesn't seem to quite work to equate 
the promise to Israel that way? All right, so maybe you come another way and you go, well, okay, Israel, I mean, the Jews. They're the Jews. Okay, what's a Jew? It doesn't really help. Do you mean specifically those from the tribe of Judah? As though the other 11 tribes don't count, including Moses himself, who isn't from the tribe of Judah? Or do you approach it another way and go, oh, no, no, it's dealing kind of with like ethnicity and race and, and connecting back to Abraham, and then how come not Ishmael? How come not Esau? They were full-blood relatives, weren't they? Well, then maybe you go, well, well, Judaism's a religion. So does that mean that, that um, I've got to convert to a system of belief that rejects Jesus as the Messiah in order to be the chosen? You seeing the problems here? You seeing the problems in how trying to define Israel is not often as easy as we make it out to be? Now, the struggle with this is, you know... If this kind of stuff is just theoretical, or if it's some like weird arbitrary command that you don't really care about, it doesn't seem to have that big of a deal. But what does it mean when questions like these strike at the core of your identity? What does it mean when it strikes at the core of the promises God has made to you is seemingly an extension of them. And yet God is faithful. And so if God has made a promise to Israel, if God is God and we can trust him, he's going to keep it. So who does Israel actually happen to be? This is the quagmire that Paul stepped into, that Jesus stepped into, that the New Testament writers did as well. Because here's all these people that are perceived as Israel, going by the name Israel, and yet rejecting Jesus as Messiah, Savior, and Lord. While there's all these other people who are never thought of by the term Israel, but by other national titles and names, who seem to be coming to Jesus and recognizing him as a, as a Messiah, as a Savior, and a Lord. And it leads Paul to have to rethink everything he assumed about the promises of God. I love what he writes in this one instance. He says, it's not like God's word failed, guys. Why? Because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they called Abraham's children. You see it in the Old Testament itself. It's through Isaac, not Ishmael, though both blood relatives that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. It gets dense, but go with me. It's like what Paul is saying. 
is that from the beginning, God made a promise to Abraham. And he chose to extend that promise to those he wished to elect. And it was that elect group that from the very beginning itself was always known as Israel. And then Paul comes face to face with Jesus and he sees he's a blood relative. He's a biological descendant of Abraham. And more than that, he is the first to do what Israel did not, to bring God's blessing to the entire world. And it led Paul to rethink everything about what it meant to be Israel. And what Paul came to realize is, do you know who Israel is? It's Jesus. Reduced into one. That the covenant person of God is Jesus. The select and elect person of God is Jesus. And therefore, anyone who is in Jesus becomes a part of that covenant promise. Which means you may have a family bloodline that goes directly back to Abraham himself. But if you reject Jesus, you are not Israel. You may be here on the other hand as Irish or Italian or Mexican or African as can be without a speck of blood, not even like, you know, great, 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 great grandma on your dad's side, right? Who saw him when you could be as Gentile as the word continues. But if you're in Jesus, God chooses you and says, Israel. And God shows that he's faithful to all of his promises because that means what God has promised to Israel. God has promised to any of you who are in Christ. And it means that the job God has given Israel, God also gives you if you are in Christ. In Jesus, Israel is no longer them. It's us. We are Israel. No matter what our bloodlines might be. And God is faithful. And whatever track record he had with the people of Israel over the history of time that he couched in terms of everlasting and forever. You can trust God in as well. And that's just one surprising look and way of how God's faithfulness works. See, what I've discovered is this. It's easy to assume, isn't it? It's easy to look at promises of God 
and make assumptions about what they mean. But if we actually come into the counsel of God to let them disclose what they mean, we find that God is surprisingly faithful in all kinds of ways we would never expect. And my invitation and hope for you today is that you would trust him. Trust him. Because if he said something, he's going to do it. No matter what the circumstances of the time might seem. He is not going to fail you or let you down. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. It is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup after supper and he gave thanks. And he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. Shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Come and do this. Remember that I'm faithful. Come and do this in remembrance of me. Welcome to a tangible representation of the promises of God.